This show is brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com. You are listening to The Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about the psycho-spiritual and psychosocial aspects of -of end-of-life care. You can find our podcast everywhere you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes and any platform you listen to the show from. And now, here are your hosts, Joe and Saul. Welcome to this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. Today we are going to talk about the intersection between faith, hospice chaplaincy, and death cafe. So with us here is Tammy Warm. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Could you introduce yourself to our audience? Yes, my name is Tammy Worm, and I am an interfaith chaplain, uh, hospice chaplain with uh, a medicine hospice here in Roseburg, Oregon. Explain your faith journey, if you can, about how it is you came to this ministry. This faith journey has been an incredible one. I, I'm still amazed when I think of the last two years of my life. I felt the call to be a chaplain in the 1990s. Well, actually, it was about the 2000s, actually, because um, I was working, I worked 39 years in a hospital And the majority of that time was um, as a nurse's aide. And I found my niche when I started working on the oncology floor. I enjoyed getting all of my physical work done in the mornings. And then in the afternoons, I had opportunity just to sit by people's bedside and hear their stories and... um, just be able to listen and encourage them on their cancer journey. Mm. But I did not uh, pursue being a chaplain for quite some time. I had four children at home. I was working full time. Mm. So in 2016, I decided that I was going to have to either go for it or forget it. And I decided to go for it. It wasn't until 2018 that I actually started my program at the Chaplaincy Institute in Berkeley, California. And what a journey that was when Mm. I started there. Yeah. You uh, have not alluded to your uh, faith background. Can you explain that? For 22 years, I was an evangelical Christian wholeheartedly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, in 2016, I became quite frustrated with mainline Christianity and uh, made the decision that I was not going to be going to church anymore. Well, it was an evangelical Christian body, and I felt very uncomfortable with some of the topics that were constantly being presented. And I think my final decision to stop going was one Sunday, the pastor presented a sermon 
about people who had coexist bumper stickers on their cars and how we did not have to coexist Mm. with people. So I, I decided at that point that I was in the wrong place. Possibly Mm. I hadn't let go of my faith in God. I just was fed up with, yeah. Some of the things that were being taught at church. That makes sense. So for the sake of our listeners, uh, you said there were some topics prior to that that were coming up that were rubbing you the wrong way. Just for the sake of our listeners, could you give us some examples of those topics and how you related with them? For one, I don't believe that there should be government and politics in church. I don't think that uh, church should be persuading a person how to vote. Um, that was one. Mm. Um, the topic of a homosexuality and LGBTQ and all of that, I never, in my heart, I never went with what was being taught. Mm. It always felt like there was some friction there. And then it all just came together, I think, with that one sermon, and I just made the decision that I could no longer be a part of of that. Yeah. How did that, I mean, I'm just, I am fascinated with how it was that all of a sudden your, your heart and your mind came together, and God was, in my mind, instrumental in making you open your eyes to see Something different, not something that is bad or awful, but something that you find that you... uh... I think I had to come to the point where I was being true to myself. Mm. And I just wasn't going along with what was being taught. Mm. I began to look at it like, I have a brain. I can think for myself. I don't need someone telling me what I should think and how I should think. And so I just made the decision that I was going to start thinking for myself. So what happened after that? Well, my husband and I didn't attend church for a while. And then my husband found a United Church of Christ church, a little church that was nearby our house. He went there one Sunday and... um, He came home and said, oh, my gosh, I think you'll want to go back to church. And so I attended and it was a church where everyone was included. Mm -hmm. And it was the church in our town where people who were of the LGBTQ community felt safe and welcomed. Um, and so we went there for a short, we went there until 2018. Mm. It was at that time where I met a hospice chaplain and I wanted to, um, kind of pick her brain about what the job entailed. And so Mm. we went to lunch one day and halfway through the conversation, she said, as a as a hospice chaplain, you have to your call is to minister to people according to their beliefs, Mm. not your belief. 
And she said, do you think that you would be able to do that? And I thought for a moment and I said, I'm not sure that I would be able to do that. And she said, well, then perhaps uh, chaplaincy isn't your calling. Mm. Well, I left there feeling very discouraged. But then over the next year, I just continued to pursue my truth and developed the courage to let go of some of the things that I thought I believed. But once I looked at them, I began to be able to let them go. And it all really happened when I uh, enrolled to be a student at the Chaplaincy Institute. I was in the interfaith study program. Mm. So I began to learn about Hinduism and Buddhism and Wiccan and Muslim and the Jewish and the Native American faith. And I just My head exploded, really. I mean, because I had, in those 22 years of evangelical Christianity, I believed that these things were false. I believed that they were, some of them, demonic. And so being able to step into them and meet people who were practicing Wiccans and practicing Buddhists, I began to realize that things are not black and white. If you open your eyes and you open your mind and your heart, things are very colorful. And um, so that year of interfaith studies was just one of pure amazement. Mm. So in your conversation with the hospice chaplain and when she said that you have to meet people where they are and minister to them in, in the line of their faith tradition, you found that initially to be a stumbling block. Uh, what was that stumbling block? My belief that there was only one way to be in relationship with God. There was only one way to heaven. Uh, Just the one way road. Uh, I loved your image of you went from the darkness into all the colors that God brings us. Uh, That is so true. That is such a, a a beautiful image of how we can you know minister to people and families and be there and be part of their 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 journey together. Uh, you have been doing this for a very short period of time. It sounds like I have only been a hospice chaplain for one year and two days. <laughs> <laughs> Happy anniversary! There you go. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome. <laughs> That's, uh, your journey has really gone in a, a very unique way. I imagine you have left some friends behind because of your new. How's your new? Your new or your your awakening? How does uh, how do your f- former friends or people look at you now? Or does that bother you? So at the end of my year at the Chaplaincy Institute and going into my six month. CPE program, my CPE supervisor was aware of my faith struggle. I I now knew that there were many ways to God, uh, you know, Buddhism and all of those different things. And so I came to a place where I 
had to make a decision personally. Either all fingers were pointing towards God or perhaps religion and the thought of God were simply ways to help us humans cope with this very often difficult life. So the concept of religion as an opium yes. of the masses. And so with fear and trepidation, I, I came to this place personally where I had to make a choice of what I really believed to be true in my heart. And I chose that it was simply a way to help people cope. Mm. And personally, 22 years of evangelical Christianity was my lifeline at times. Like life was difficult and it was hard. And just the thought that there was a supreme being who had control and was in control was what I held on to. But now that I had awakened, now that I had begun to open my heart and my mind for myself, I let it all go. And from that point on, I considered myself and do still consider myself an agnostic humanist. I did swing to atheism for just a brief time, but then I decided that was just as close-minded as my belief in God. So I came to embrace my unknowingness. I don't know. Um, And so I am okay with that. And the humanist part, I like to say that I'm more interested in connecting to human spirits than holy spirits. And um, that's what I try to do as a hospice chaplain, connect to that human spirit. Mm. So how has that influenced your practice of hospice chaplaincy? Oh, my gosh. It has freed me because I don't know. And so I am so open to whatever someone believes, you know, If you believe in God, if you believe that he's in control of your situation in your life, then that is great, you know? Um, Yeah, it just makes me more open to what others believe because I basically, I'm I'm neutral. So So it's easier for you to walk into the room and at least in my, uh, clarify for me if I'm oversimplifying this, you walk into a patient's room and uh, you start talking to them with your openness to whatever they're going to. And uh, all of a sudden they ask you, what do you believe? I mean, does that eliminate that question? How you're going in there? Um, I don't think it eliminates the question. What I have found in my year working with patients and families, a lot of people have questions themselves. Absolutely. And so when they ask me and I share with them that 
I really don't know. It frees them up to say, well, gosh, I don't know either. Mm -hmm. You know, so it gives people freedom to admit that they don't know. If the chaplain doesn't know, then it's okay for me not to know. One of my favorite patients, she was a 94-year-old woman. The first visit I had with her, she kept saying that she was Methodist. I'm Methodist. And I'm like, that's wonderful. Where do you go to church? Oh, I don't go to church. My illness prevents me from going to church. And so for the first two or three visits, she would always start the conversation with that. I'm a Methodist. Well, that's wonderful. But I don't go to church because of my illness. Well, that's okay. (laughs) So then about the fourth visit, I come in and she says, you know what? I haven't been truthful with you. And I said, really? How's that? And she said, well, she said, my illness doesn't prevent me from going to the casino. (laughs) And so I guess I'm just not willing to go to church. (laughs) We had a great laugh about that. Oh, that's awesome. The thing with that patient also is she had a visit with the nurse practitioner. And the nurse practitioner and her were from the same state originally, Minnesota. So they had a lot of, you know, things uh, in common. And she felt comfortable enough with the nurse practitioner to express her doubt that God even existed. And so the nurse practitioner said, well, have you discussed that with the chaplain? And she said, oh, no, I would never be able to say that to the chaplain. And so the nurse practitioner came back to the office and she told me of this conversation. And so the next time I visited, I tried many ways to get her to tell me that, but (laughs) she wouldn't. So nearing the end of the conversation, I looked at her and I said, hey, can I ask you a question? And she said, yes. And I said, do you doubt that God even exists sometimes? And she looked at me and she said, I do. And I said, me too. And so we had this great open conversation about our doubts. And it's wonderful. And that's the moments that I appreciate as a chaplain. I'm finding that a lot of people have preconceived ideas about who I am and what my role is as I minister to them. And so being able to say, I don't know gives people permission to say, I don't know. And then I'm no longer this spiritual authority that's coming in and they think there's something they have to say or do. Mm -hmm. So then you transition from a spiritual authority to a spiritual companion, which you love. Yeah. Very, very dear friend of mine died recently. And he was more or less my mentor during during all my years of ministry. Support, un- incredible. So when he uh, had very serious heart issue and came into our hospice, and I would hear Bob talk to me and everybody else around him and talk, especially to his family. And he has a grand. He had a grand. Has a granddaughter who uh, just ran away from even the idea of faith uh, for the longest time until I think she came to realize that when Bob told her, he says, "You know, I'm not even sure there's a heaven." And all these uncertainties and doubts and everything that came along that she just, you know, made her even closer with him before he died. 
And I was just amazed to see how it was that this guy that I had been friends and whatever for half my life uh, had all these things that you're talking about. Him and I happen to be a UCC clergy as well. So we have our own our own stories too. And uh, it's uh, if it, it keeps me on my toes, let's put it that way. Yeah. It's a scary thing sometimes to say we doubt something that we've believed in so ho- wholeheartedly. Absolutely. It's a scary thing to say, well, is it true? Mm-hmm. And I want people in their remaining days to feel the freedom to say, I doubt that God even exists or is there a heaven? Mm -hmm. And so I I love those conversations because it's time to get real. Exactly. Exactly. You've ever had a conversation with someone who has seen heaven before they died? I have not. It's an interesting conversation. I've had those happen with me on a couple of occasions, many occasions. And it's very interesting to me because then it kind of reassures me that there's something out there in my mind. Mm -hmm. It's funny, though, sometimes when I've asked patients who are believers who say they're not afraid because they know that they're going to heaven, when I ask when you closed your eyes and you imagine what it's going to be like, what do you see? And even those who believe they're going to heaven sometimes say, I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't yeah. see anything. Exactly. Yeah, we'll take a little break and then we'll be right back. someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. It is a free nationwide peer support service providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI Helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at NAMI.org. I'm Sole Bem, and you're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. We are continuing our conversation with Tammy Wam. Uh, Tammy, um, every hospice chaplain that comes to the show, we ask them, what do you like about hospice chaplaincy? So this question is to you. What do you like about hospice chaplaincy? My favorite part is hearing people's stories. I, I, that is just my favorite part. I love hearing people relive their life in a short period of time. I had this one gentleman and, um, he just loved to tell stories. He Uh loved to tell stories. And, but again, he would always say that, you know, I'm a Baptist. I grew up a Baptist and our year long journey together, almost our year long journey together, the stories continued, but when it was getting nearer to the end for him, again, he began to have doubts about what he previously believed. 
And at one point he said, you know, he said, I was thinking about it the other night while I was not sleeping. And I think I believe in reincarnation. So he was telling us, him and his wife, about how he hoped that he came back as a monkey who lived in the jungle, you know. And the wife was looking at him like, but you're a Baptist, you know, you go to heaven. And he was like, I'm not sure of that anymore. So I'm thinking that I would like to be a monkey and swing in the trees and, you know, be a part of the jungle. So my biggest fear is with some of my patients who are evangelical believers. I know that world. I lived in that world for 22 years. So when I encounter a patient who has similar beliefs that I did during those 22 years, I can fall back into that, that role very easily. I know what they want to hear. I know the way they want me to pray. And so I am able to do that. And in the moment, it feels very familiar and very sincere. Okay. But then when I leave and I'm driving in my car, I worry sometimes about them believing that that's who I am when I'm not. I am for them in that moment, but then I'm, when I get out to my car, I'm not that person. And so sometimes I worry about that. And sometimes I feel. If they knew, would they want me to come back? It sounds like you're troubled with, are you being true to yourself? And do you feel that when you're in those situations, you're still true to yourself? I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm true to myself in the moment because that's what their need is. It's when mm-hmm. I get out into the car that I begin to have some uncomfortable feelings. Like, I don't, that wasn't an act. That was me being sincere for them. Yesterday, I visited a patient, which is very rare nowadays. Uh, They were at home. And while I was there, uh, I was in the other room while they were finished feeding the the patient. And I was talking to his brother. And he finally had his his sister-in-law over there helping with the feeding of her, her husband. And so he had alone time with me. And that's when the that's when the faith question came out. He says, now, has he told you yet that he believes in God? And I said, well, I haven't talked to him about that yet. The first time I came here, he slept the whole visit. This is my second visit here. I said, but I will ask him. And I, you know, and I'm not going to put myself in the in the middle of something. What I'm going to do is talk to the wife first and then see what she, how she handles the situations. I, you know, he comes from a rather different faith perspective than myself. He tends to be, to me, a little bit more on the evangelical side, and I am not. And I'm not going to be, you know, I'm not going to fall into that trap of doing something that, you know, is not appropriate for that patient. And I, I just wondered how you would feel coming into a situation like that. I had a situation like that just a couple weeks ago. Uh, it was an initial visit. It was an elderly woman who had many comorbidities, but she also had some dementia, not 
that wasn't her hospice diagnosis, but she did have some dementia. And she was living with her niece. And the niece was an evangelical Christian. And when I came and presented myself, introduced myself, and asked what their needs were, the niece said, she is an atheist. Her husband was an atheist. I am trying to convince her that there is God and that there is heaven. And so I am wanting you as the chaplain to help me convince her of that. <laughs> and could you read some, you know, John three sixteen? And, and I said, you know, I, I can understand where you are, but that is not my role as a chaplain, you know? And so she was, I think she was offended at the end of the, the visit, she said, yes, I would like for you to come back next week. But before next week arrived, she called the office and said that she would no longer need the chaplain's uh, services. Yep. I've heard that before. So I was, you know, it was during that week that I was contemplating how I was going to handle this situation because it made me very uncomfortable. Oh, I bet. I bet. Yeah. So um, earlier on, you said that when you meet an evangelical person, you you live the role because that's that's a part of your life that you've lived for many years. But then you get in the car, and you feel a sense of guilt. How do you reconcile that tension within you? A lot of reflection, a lot of self care. But why would you feel guilty for meeting a patient's need? That was what they needed, and you became that for them and gave it to them. It, it is. But then there's that part of me that feels, there's the part of me that feels like I'm playing a role. And that's the part that I kind of wrestle with sometimes. You're not playing. I'm not, no, I'm not, I'm not playing. Yeah. I mean, I am being true to what they need. Yes. I think the friction is with myself then. Um, yeah. L- let me ask you this. If that were the same situation where it would happen to be a Hindu or a Muslim that you walk in there and uh, would you have the same f- would you have the same uh, guilt as you walked out that you didn't do, that you would put on a role that wasn't the one, you know, there you are, you walk in, you say you're going to try and be somewhat Muslim and know what their tradition is. And then you walk out, you know, are you going to feel the same guilt? I don't think so. Why? 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 Yeah. <laughs> Why? Because um, in that instance, it's not familiar. It's, simply what I learned when I was going to school. Right. It wasn't my life. But tell me, years. tell me, I think, I think there's a, you're an amazing chaplain. You're an amazing human you have being. Such, yes. So there's so many layers to you, but I feel like you're talking yourself out of taking care of evangelical passions. <laughs> Let's no, talk about this. <laughs> I enjoy my evangelical Christian patients. 
No, no, I want. <laughs> I, I think because it's so familiar to me. Okay. So why it, why shouldn't the familiarity be a sense of comfort? Why is the familiarity creating conflict and even guilt within you? Because in the moment, I am presenting as a Christian believer. Although I've never said that, I've never, I've never said to them, I am a practicing evangelical Christian, but I have not said that I'm an agnostic humanist either. But I've so been the, way in- I can, the way I can present to them is very familiar. So it's like I am an evangelical Christian for them. Yes, exactly. and that is a good posture. That is a good posture. I mean, it's like walking into the into a Catholic's room and you start doing the prayers that you know that are familiar with them and then they take over and then, you know, like, you know, Hail Mary, full of grace, and let them go 100 miles an hour. You know, right. I'm trying to do what is familiar and, and comforting to that person. And you're doing the same thing when you're doing it to those, but you have a different Guilt. layer of... Of of your having those many years of life in that realm, uh, and uh, I would think that your patients would just adore you because you were able to to be legitimately in touch with them in their faith, even though you're even though you're not there, but you're there to them, and that I think is a is a really a wonderful it's thing powerful. for you. Yeah, and I want you to embrace that. I think it will come with more, with more time and experience. You know what? Maybe maybe there's something we are not talking about. Were you wounded when you left? Oh, I was wounded. Like sometimes twenty-two years of believing a certain way, and then once you don't believe that way anymore, it's kind of like you kind of question yourself. Something died. And you had, and I'm not sure if you've grieved it all appropriately, and or not appropriately, but grieved it enough to know that you know I can let it go now, and everything's mm-hmm. all right, and I can live this as part of me, and not have any kind of pain and sorrow with that. And that's mm-hmm. and, and legitimately, I mean, uh, you, you talk to those who have left the Catholic Church, and they have those that have issues. Uh, I mean, I had pain when I left uh, a certain congregation. Uh, mm-hmm. I still deal with that pain and anger. I mean, we all have those situations, and uh, it hopefully does not affect how I deal with my patients. Yeah, and I, I know, mean, it, I, and I know it doesn't do with you because you're, you're. It sounds like you do some marvelous and wonderful ministry. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I. I believe I do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you do. You do. <laughs> okay. So. I just thoroughly enjoy my job. And there are some days where I feel like, wow, I've got it. And then there's days like yesterday where I was like, what in the world, you know, because I didn't make a connection with but one person. And I, yeah, so Happens. no way do I say that egotistically. I just, mm. I love my position and I am having a great time so you're not working, you're just having a good time, which is the best way to have your work. <laughs> so um, then, uh, 
at the beginning of this year, you began to do death cafes. Could you define it for our audience and what that looks like? Well, very quickly, as a hospice chaplain, I realized that the majority of people do not feel comfortable with talking about death and dying. And the only reason people start talking about it is because they've been diagnosed with a terminal illness. Someone they love has been diagnosed with a terminal illness and it's actually happening to them. I want the conversations about death and dying to be a comfortable and readily talked about topic. And I want people to become comfortable with the words death and dying. And so that was uh, when I wanted to pursue a death cafe. I was only able to host my first one before the pandemic occurred. And I saw that other people were doing it like online, mm-hmm. but I'm just not there. I, I don't. I haven't become comfortable with online Zoom meetings and all of that. I like being face-to-face and real-time. Couldn't agree with you more about the idea of educating people about using the terms death and dying. Uh, It frustrates the heck out of me for all of my hospice career now that people, uh, when you, you know, my first question to you, uh, my first question was to try and just bring a little levity to it because I said, how many social gatherings have you been in that you destroyed the conversation when you said, well, you know, you ever thought about you're going to die? You know, something like that. And, and, and it's interesting how it shuts down conversations. Yeah. Like, uh, I was gifted a, right after my ordination, another hospice chaplain gifted me with a... Uh, deck of cards. They're called the death deck. Cool. I've not not seen that. Never. They are some very fun and interesting questions. And so when I got the death deck, I live next door to my parents now and uh, my elderly parents. And so I received the death deck in the mail And uh, we were having dinner at their house, my husband and I. And my mom, she's a big Yahtzee fan, so she likes to play (laughs) Yahtzee after dinner. And she said, hey, want to play a game of Yahtzee? And I said, no. I said, let's do something different. Let's get out the death deck. And she was like, oh, I don't know. And I said, (laughs) mom, what's the matter? And she said, I really don't want to talk about And she whispered it. And I said, Mom, you don't have to whisper the word death. Just say it out loud, you know? And so she said, okay, but, you know, I'm going to participate, but I'm not going to like it. And, you know, she participated, and it ended up being a fun session of just asking questions. And they're questions that people don't ask each other until the end. And then you're caught up in all these other emotions and it's not, it's not good. So I want people to start talking about these things all the time. Wait, that's right. Exactly right. I mean, uh, 
in my family, you know, my mom's 97 years old now, and my dad died 10 years ago. And, you know, mom and I have those open conversations that you talk about with your mom. And, you know, I'm known in the family to, to the one who shuts down the conversation because I talk about my experiences in hospice. Mm -hmm. And uh, because I'm not afraid to talk about it. And others are. And I'm hopefully showing them not in an arrogant way, but in a way to say that this is something that is important when we start talking about living life anyway. We need because to learn we're all how to die. It's absolutely. I mean, there's Every one of us, nobody's getting out of here alive. So let's talk about it and let's not have it be such a scary, morose topic. Mm -hmm. Let's put it out there. And the death deck, I mean, the death deck has serious questions. And they have some really funny questions, you yeah. know? So my first death cafe, there were about 25 people. Now the majority wow. were my coworkers, but <laughs> nevertheless, it was an evening of eating cake, uh, drinking tea, and just asking each other these questions. And it's amazing when you start talking about it, you realize that saying death doesn't invoke you know, the grim reaper to come and take you away. And I think a lot of people do think that once they say death or dying that, oh my gosh, something's going to happen. It's like, know? it's like bringing in hospice, telling the family that, you know, your loved one needs hospice. And immediately they think within two days, their loved one's going to die. Right. So, Some patients are amazed that they've lasted nine months. Or a know? year, or even we've, I have a patient that's been with us for five years, so. And I've had a lot of people say, I wish I knew that when I came on to hospice, oh. I had more time than I thought. Because a lot of people don't go out and do the things that they want to do because they're sitting in their chair waiting to die because mm -hmm. they're on hospice. That's right. It's more of a chance to go out there and do what you can while you can. Mm. You know. So, so as, as a death educator, why do you think the culture is so scared of talking about death. I don't think people want to accept the fact that we're all going to die and that we don't know when we're going to die. You know, we think death is like way into the future and why start thinking about it now? That's, you know, 40, 50 years away. We don't know. Mm. We could die tomorrow. Yeah. You know, and you want your wishes to be known and what you want to happen when you die. And so start talking about it now. How know? do you want, I mean, it's a question you need to ask everybody in your family or even to answer for your, to your family to say, this is how I want to die. And I think that's a significant conversation that I'm sure you take part of in your death cafes. Uh, you know, how do you want to die? I mean, do you want to sit around and, you know, lay in bed and just listen to music or nothing? Or do you want to still be somewhat active until you can't be active anymore? And how do you yeah. want it when you want it near end of life? Do you want to have the Beatles playing or do you want church music? Do you want uh, somebody to read you a story? Do you want someone to just uh, hold your hand? Or do you want to be left alone? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, you know, I've had so many times where I've been to a death and, you know, the families are, are a little bit unha not unhappy. They're just, I wish I would have known more what I could do for my loved one. Mm -hmm. And, you know, 
because uh, I mean, there's a story I have of a of this one patient many years ago, and this woman was Alzheimer's and had not eaten for over two weeks, lying in bed, and the family was there every day, spending hours upon hours and wondering my mom wouldn't die. What was mom holding on to? We finally came on her day that she did die, and I went in there, and they were talking about their brother who has had had some uh, emotional issues, and were afraid of bringing him to see mom under these conditions. Mm-hmm. And they said, "I wonder if they're worrying about mom to come and see Bobby. Maybe we should bring Bobby." And I said, "I think that's a good idea." To our, of course, two and a half hours after Bobby visited, mom died. Mm-hmm. I mean. We, you know, if we did, if we were able to talk about this ahead of time, a lot of these things could make make a death a good death. And I think there is such a thing as a good death. I mean, oh, I have seen good deaths, and then I have seen like, oh my gosh, it could have went so much better than that. Yep. You know, I have I have a personal story. Uh, about knowing what people want. My dad served 20 years in the military. Um, He's 81 now. And about three years ago, his brother died. And his brother had served like six years in the military. But his brother's funeral was at the VA cemetery. They had Mm -hmm. the full, you know, guns and, and all of that. And I just assumed that that's what my dad would want. And so we get in the car, we're driving to the, you know, to the reception after the funeral. And my dad announces, if anybody is wondering, I do not want that. And I was like, really, dad, you're sure? And he's like, I am positive. He said, you know what I want? I want people to, when I die, I want people to, uh, go to McMinimins. It's a brew pub here in, in our town. I want them all to have a beer and tell their favorite memory of me. And then I want you to take my ashes and I want them scattered in my vegetable garden. And that's the end of it. <laughs> Wonderful. Those are the things that we don't ask because we that's just right. assume or we don't want to talk about that because, well, that's way off into the future, you know. But it's not. Uh, exactly it's right. We talked about now. That's what my dad did to us. Had no idea what he wanted. You know, we thought we were going to do the traditional funeral. He was going to be cremated. We might take his ashes out east, where he was from, and go to the ocean, where they spent every summer. And I thought that'd be a great thing to do. And then all of a sudden, two weeks before he dies, I mean, you know, he wasn't sick. He had nothing wrong with him. Two weeks before he died, he says, yeah, I want to be buried over at Abraham Lincoln, which, again, is the veteran's uh, home. I'm not mm-hmm. home, veteran's uh, memori- uh, cemetery. And I thought, wow, I didn't know Dad had that much, uh, that, that feeling about his time in the, in the Navy when he was in World War II. And, of course, that's where Mom will be buried when she dies. And... Uh, I just, you know, you don't know until you ask. And he didn't even, we did it. Yeah, it was interesting talk. Yeah. And some people haven't thought about it themselves. And so once you start talking about it, it gives people an opportunity to go, well, what do I really want? You know, Mm -hmm. what Mm -hmm. do I want? And then they start talking about that. And I think that's a great thing. 
So as a final thought, what advice or wisdom do you have for our listeners? Be true to yourself. I want people to be true to themselves. I want people to think for themselves. I want people to embrace not knowing something. You know, it's so freeing when you're able to say, I don't really know, you know, but I'm open. And I think that's the thing. Be open. Be willing to look at all possibilities and then be true to yourself and choose which is the best one for you. Tammy, thank you very much. Yes, thank you. Oh my gosh, thank you so much. It has been a privilege to uh, be your guest today. So thank you for allowing me to share my journey. Thank you. That was Tammy Wam. Uh, thank you for listening. Podcasting is a studio dedicated to podcast recording, editing, and production. For more information, you can find us at audiohivepodcasting.com.